Hello and welcome. My name's Joe Frost and I'm here with my co-host Peter Linus and this is Being Human. So we're back. We've made it into season two, which means somebody more than my mother must have listened to the first season. Well, I don't know that we can say that it was somebody more than your mother, but we're back anyway. And uh, season two, it's nice and quiet in the world at the moment. I don't think we're going to have any content to talk about in this season at all. Yeah, nothing about a global pandemic to discuss or multiple lockdowns or maybe by the time people listen to this, we'll know what the result of the US election is this year, next year. Who knows? Indeed, indeed. So, given that we've only been able to connect over a screen at best, what have you been up to since we last met? What's your best podcast, book, box set, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, podcast is kind of strange, isn't it? Because like many people, I haven't been traveling, haven't been listening to anywhere near as much, sort of got back into them again recently. So one I've enjoyed is Reading Our Times by Nick Spencer at Theos. Uh, really good trying to get like behind the news but at a whole other level to us so um, he had Charles Taylor the legend of the secular age on just recently so some great stuff there Uh, in terms of watching um, The Social Dilemma I really enjoyed Stroke was freaked out by that (laughs) yeah so I'm going to watch that with my my daughter soon about the impact of social media in our lives and how it works and actually on the same vein I read um, Reed Hastings the founder of Netflix, his book, No Rules, Rules, which was fascinating just in terms of how they run that company. Wow, nice. Yeah. yeah. So what about you? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Yeah, similar to you, podcast definitely took a back seat. Um, but coming coming out of that now, uh, really enjoying The Economist, uh, little news snippets every day, um, especially appreciating the global element of that to sort of drag my brain beyond some of the domestic stuff that's feeling really quite close and immediate. Um, So that's been good. Uh, Paul Williams over at the Bible Society, his latest book, Exiles on a Mission, loved it. Challenging, inspiring, really prophetic for this moment. I mean, buy the book for the footnotes alone. It's just brilliant. And then my guilty pleasure has been uh, The Boys uh, on Amazon Prime, watching um, just this dystopian program of what happens when uh, superheroes who are as flawed as the rest of us can have a bad day and threaten to destroy the world. Very interesting on some of the social commentary that uh, comes out of that. Well, I think I'll leave the boys to you, but Paul Williams' book is brilliant. I can see it there on my shelf. He was one of my old lecturers and really appreciated uh, Exiles on Mission. So I think we'd both recommend that to everyone. Um, If you don't know already, we're on social media. We'd love to hear from you uh, on Twitter, at Joe Frosty for you, at Peter Linus for me. We want to know what you're engaging with. What are you listening to? Have you got any recommendations for us? Um, We also want to know what kind of questions you're hearing, what's being asked in your world, um, because we want to address what's actually going on in your world as our listeners. Yes, indeed. So we are back. We're back for a second season, looking at the stories, the headlines and the cultural happenings in our world today, but all through a biblical lens to explore what it means to be human. And we have upped our game just a little bit now. We are beginning to launch the kind of wider Being Human project. Uh, We have a small vision. You like this one, don't you? A renewed humanity. It's as simple. It's as profound. It's as big as that. Oh my goodness. It's just, I I mean, it is our vision, but it does sound a little bit ridiculous when we say it, but 
We're doing this because we genuinely think that what it is to be human is the most profound and the most contested question that we are asking in our culture today. Um, and part of the Being Human Project, a part of this podcast, part of what we're about is to help the church address and answer that question with the good, true and beautiful news of Jesus. Yeah, so we are we are totally excited. We are passionate about this. We want you to check out the website. I would give the address, but I'll get it wrong. Let me try beinghumanproject.co.uk. Nailed it. Well done. Oh, man, it's the first time I've got that right. Uh, you can see there, uh, we're going to give more resources about the biblical story, about the cultural story. We want to engage right at that point of intersection through the lens of what it is to be human. And if you're new to us, do go back and listen to season one. Um, but as a quick catch up, let me introduce my co-host, Peter Linus, legal eagle, public theologian and a dedicated dad. Oh, that's very kind of you to say that. Did I what? write that for you? <laughs> well, you did, but also I think it helps explain the dad jokes that are sure to come. Easy, easy. And my co-host is Joe Frost, communications guru, missional maestro and mum with a passion for discipleship. I'll take that. Every day. It always sounds like we know what we're doing. If only. <laughs> okay, so the title of this episode is Whose Lives Matter? So it sounds like we are jumping straight away into some controversy. Yes, maybe, maybe, maybe. No, hopefully not too controversial because this is where the story is at. This is what our culture is talking about. The big story, of course, is around COVID and the pandemic, just in case you hadn't noticed that, Joe. <laughs> I think even I managed to spot that one. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the pandemic has exposed so many underlying stories and assumptions that we all operate with, but don't necessarily bring into um, consciousness. Um, assumptions about the value and the worth that we put on people's lives. I mean, we, we picked up on this in our bonus episode when we were talking about the challenging conversations the pandemic has caused at the beginning of lockdown. We face the reality and we're arguably going to face again what happens when there is a limited number of ventilators or hospital resource um, and only, only some of all the people who need help can have it. Therefore, we've got to make some really tough choices in terms of treatment. Will those who are older, who require more support and then take up a ventilator for longer, have access to something when the younger and the fitter will only need a short amount of time on the ventilator? Therefore, that same ventilator could serve more people. So if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, limited number of ventilators, who do you ventilate? Well, you probably ventilate the younger and the fitter because then you'll save more lives. But that feels like a really a really horrific choice and, and statement to be making. Yeah, and it hasn't stopped there. I mean, right now we have this uh, kind of blaming of different groups. You've got students and young people being blamed. Um, the BAME community has been disproportionately affected by fatalities throughout this uh, pandemic. Then again, now with localised restrictions, you've got this kind of the north of England is facing tighter restrictions. Those may well come to London, but the kind of initial narrative was around the furlough scheme being less generous. So do northern lives matter less than those in the south and real challenges in those kind of statements? And we've we've seen this kind of this value narrative um, 
trickle out in other areas as well. We saw it with the Thursday night clap back at the beginning of lockdown where we all went out to clap the nurses and the delivery drivers and the uh, checkout staff. We we would normally in our society celebrate and honour and give awards and prize and prestige to the rich and the powerful and consider them to be the most valuable members of our society. But today it's demonstrably the people who are most useful to us. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the COVID is just one lens through which we see this larger question. We're saying whose lives matter? What's the value of life being narrated? Right. Because we can't forget that the biggest story to cut through the COVID noise has been around Black Lives Matter. Um, in the last six months, the biggest story was probably the death of George Floyd, Um in the US. And we saw global protests still ongoing. We've had conversations and pushbacks. Black Lives Matter became a key national conversation, not only in the US, but in the UK and arguably all around the world where we heard heartbreaking stories of the dehumanizing effect of racism that have been shared and heard both national levels and at personal levels. It is it's been a time of reckoning and and hopefully, hopefully reconciliation as we confront not only our past, but our present um, of systemic racial injustice and collectively say enough is enough. Lives matter. Black lives matter. But, yeah, and those three yeah, words have been controversial, haven't they? I mean, that's really challenged the states. You've seen the pushback, the blue lives matter, all lives matter as if only one can matter at a time. Yeah, or, or only one group of lives can matter. If, if one group of lives matter more, then does that mean one life, one group of lives matter less? Yeah, and we've seen a lot of pushback around the identity politics, around the intersectionality, around critical theory and how all those apply. <laughs> and here we are, two, two white privileged people talking about race. Yeah, and yet we have to create the space to be able to have those conversations um, and actually, this episode isn't about race. It's about whose lives matter, which is a larger question of which race is a part and how the cultural stories that we live into shape our society and what it thinks about the beginning of life, the end of life, about race, about disability, about who gets treated for COVID. Uh, and each of those experiences keeps bringing us back to some really key questions. Whose life matter? Who decides? And, and how do we make that kind of decision? Because there seems to be this constant cacophony of voices telling us who we are, how we should live and what will lead to a better life. Each of these voices is is selling us a story about what does it mean to be human? What is true? What is real? What is wrong? What will make you happy and how you can get it? And there are big overarching stories in behind that. Individualism, consumerism, Atheism, scientism, secularism, the list of isms literally could go on forever. And then there are these more individual micro stories that we each have. Loneliness in this moment and isolation, a sense of real anxiety and fear, or just a search for love and purpose and meaning. And so there's a whole variety of stories at these different levels that are being challenged. And they're often in conflict uh, with one another and our culture is changing faster than ever so we're we're just seeing the acceleration of change and the conflicting nature of the stories means that the very essence of what it is to be human 
is contested with protesters out on the streets almost debating at the minute and, and, and arguing about whose lives matter. Right. So this episode is exactly that debate, is how do you discern the value of an individual human life and how do you work out whose lives matter? We're seeing... Um, we want to see that story that's underplaying and underpinning that narrative and see, can it answer that question? What is the value of a human life? How do we work it out and how do we navigate it? What is the dominant framework that we're all operating under? And then what is the biblical framework and what truth and goodness and beauty does that alternative framework offer us and then we're going to see how that all helps us navigate everything that's going on today. So then this question of value, it reminds me of a conversation that I was having with one of the mums um, in my area as the um, Gender Recognition Act was out for consultation. And she was just saying how frustrated she found uh, the whole debate around um, trans lives matter and women's lives matter. And she said, why does it feel like in order to protect and affirm the human rights of one group, I have to throw the human rights of another group under the bus? Why is this trade-off happening? Why does it feel like we can't have two groups' values and worth and honour and dignity affirmed simultaneously. Yeah, and it, it takes us to the classic hierarchy of rights piece um, where you know, it's happening in sport right now. For example, women's sports do trans rights, Trump women's rights. Uh, and in lots of areas you say, well, is it religious rights over this group of rights or is it somebody else's? So it's as if there's a hierarchy and for one to get their way, somebody else has to lose. It's a zero-sum game. And that really comes from, I would say, a utilitarian framework. How useful is anybody's life? And we do the cost-benefit analysis and one group is seen as winning and one group is seen uh, as losing. And so the question is, who's useful? And whoever is useful gets treatment, for example, on the NHS. Whoever is useful gets celebrated. So we go out and clap the NHS and we clap the delivery drivers, as you were saying earlier. And in one sense, we want to celebrate a part of that in terms of everyday discipleship. There's a great thing in that. We recognize the priesthood of all believers in that moment. We recognize that it's everyone, everywhere, every day doing their stuff. So there's something wonderful about going out and celebrating those who weren't normally celebrated, the nurses and the delivery drivers, and saying, fantastic, it's amazing what you're doing. And we want to get behind and support and say, actually, all of this does matter. But it does have a cost attached to it as well, where you reduce and minimise people or only see their usefulness in terms of categories. I was um, reading Ben Lindsay's book, um, We Need to Talk About Race, and I found this section where he was talking about black bodies and white intellect, just heartbreakingly fascinating when we use certain terminology to describe black athletes, whether it's Serena Williams, and we talk about her strength and her physicality. We talk about quick-footed uh, black footballers, whereas we'll talk about um, the intelligence and the smartness of other white athletes um, or white intellects. And it's all based on usefulness, but it's this 
um, minimizing and dehumanizing process where we only look at certain characteristics or certain attributes and base the value of that person on their perceived usefulness and rob them of the wholeness of who they are um, and what they carry. Yeah, and there's so many different ways to just kind of want to take what you've just said there. Uh, there's football commentators who were getting into trouble again for talking about black players in terms of speed and strength, white players in terms of the read of the game. It thinks about mind and body and how we prioritize the physical body versus the mind, our hierarchy again. What if you're not useful? What if you can't contribute to society? Uh, kind of like, yes, the stream of consciousness. Which, which one are we going to do first? Where, where do we go next? Okay, well, let's go big picture. Um, you mentioned utilitarianism. I vaguely remember that from one of my A-levels. Let's define and unpack that first. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, utilitarianism is a, a school of uh, philosophy and ethical thought. In the simplest terms, it's about utility. So we talk about a utility company, an electric company or water company, because they give us something useful. And the bottom line is utilitarianism says you make your choices, uh, you think about life through the usefulness of something. It in many ways, it's as simple as that. You do a basic cost-benefit analysis, you weigh something up, which action is the most useful? Which way forward is the most useful? It's not about your inherent dignity, your inherent value. It just says, whose life is useful? That one gets whatever's on the table at that moment. And we talked before about Tom Holland, um, and he's written this book, Dominion, and he argues that human rights don't just hang in the ether waiting to be discovered. Like that's one of the things that we're really interested in as a society at this time. But he's saying, no, they're actually underpinned by Christian faith. He's writing as, as an agnostic and just trying to remind people actually that, that the equality and human rights agenda and framework that we have out there, whether its adherents realize it or not, is deeply Christian. And we live in a society that continues to live off the fruits of the Christian story, what we'll sometimes refer to as the God story, while they're simultaneously chopping down the very tree that sustains that fruit. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I remember Nietzsche, the the German philosopher who who rejected Christianity and in its outworkings, but also reject, rejected its tree, and ultimately said that he couldn't engage in the thinking that said there is value if it didn't have a fundamental, and therefore, if you give up on the Christian faith, you have to pull. Um, out uh, Christian thinking and Christian morality from under your feet and you're just ending up in this strongman world where um, I have absolute right to do whatever I want to you because I'm the strongest out of this relationship. Yeah, Nietzsche was a bit more honest than many people are. I mean, he's fairly famous for declaring that God is dead. and He's basically saying, look, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't claim the story or sorry, deny the story and try and take the fruits. And so otherwise, you you know, so he denies the story and he's more honest in saying what he wants beyond that is, is a simple power play. If you get rid of the Christian story, you're left with a pagan philosophy about strength. And he's like, yep, let the strong man, the ubermensch win. And that's all he's interested in. Indeed, indeed. Weakness needs to be eradicated um, and, and recreate a world where in the days, uh, as you said, before he, mankind grew ashamed of its cruelty. So dog eat dog, strongest one wins. And what's the problem with that? Well, and we see little bits of it coming through into society today. In fact, more than little bits uh, we see talk of the strongman and political leaders and people wanting that, but you see the flip side on the weakness. 
what do you do with somebody who's weak? What do you do with somebody who's got Down syndrome? So Amazon were in trouble recently because he got this T-shirt, Let's Make Down Syndrome Extinct. I mean, just shocking stuff. Uh, and, and fair play to somebody like Sally Phillips, you know, well-known comedian and campaigner, who jumped up and said, hold on, we need to do something about that. I mean, below that story in the Daily Mail, it had this section on eugenics. And they were right. People were like, what are you saying? Actually, that's where it lands. It's a real problem as a story. It is. It is. I, I I found it fascinating as it was playing out on a uh, on Twitter and social media, and then it it tipped into the national media as well of of basically pointing at. Hang on a second. I'm a human being. Being Brent um, uh, Twitter person. Uh, well, he's not a pe- Twitter person, but person on Twitter. Um, it was just pointing out just how awful this story made him feel because. It, he was basically being described as something that should be made extinct. He wasn't worth anything. His life wasn't valuable. When we when we reduce people's lives to usefulness, we have no system or structure or foundation to say, you who have less use have value. Yeah, and uh, I remember one day, a little story, a little tangent is, uh, I was out running, came back in, uh, having a shower and stuff, and, and got this phone call. And somebody said, uh, producer was like, would you ever be up for uh, debating Richard Dawkins? And I said, wow, that would be a really interesting idea. What were you thinking? He said, I need you in the studio in about 20 minutes. <laughs> I was like, just not under those circumstances. But it was at the time, so I managed to get there. And uh, it was at the time Dawkins had said uh, some, made some comments around those with Down syndromes. And he said, basically, if you get that collection of cells, was how he was describing the, the pre-born baby, then that's not a good collection. It's just gone wrong. It's just the way it is. So get rid of that collection of cells uh, and start again and try and get a new collection of cells that are better. And in a sense, like people were really shocked and we, we started discussing that idea. Um, but he had an honesty in the sense that he at least went through with his position. That's what he believes. It's actually a story a lot of people are living into. Those cells aren't useful. Get rid of them and start with a new set of cells. Um, but Richard was shocking because he kind of carried it through and articulated really clearly the logic of the position actually lots of people hold in our society and is brutal. It, it it really is. I mean, what do you say to somebody like Brent, who's who's there on social media saying, are you saying that my collection of cells is wrong um, and should have been aborted? I, I shouldn't be here, according to that standing. And we, we can see that intuitively. We see his face. We look at him and go, no, no, no. You're great. You work. But then we simultaneously see legislation coming through and activity that supports where Richard Dawkins is coming from. And we see this disconnect of not recognizing the implications of some of the stories that are governing our actions and our assumptions and the, the consequence of how they play out. Yeah, I mean, I remember going for our scan when we had a baby and I in fact, I remember reading the book beforehand, the book that somebody had written, a friend of ours, Sarah Williams, who's a friend of both of us, but and saying that the large part of the purpose of that second scam was to identify potential problems like Downs. And I just hadn't realized that. And then remember us thinking as a couple saying, right, are we going to go? Because no matter what happens, we're going to keep the baby. And we said, but yes, we'd still like to know. But I don't think we as a society realize that that's part of the purpose. And when people have that scan and that test, actually don't screen us out as the campaign um, by many saying, well, that's the purpose almost of that screening is to, is to get rid of babies with Downs. And the, the kind of health professions often say, oh, it's not good. Just try again. And it's a, it's kind of really brutal form of this utilitarian thinking. 
the main guy who talks about that is a guy called Peter Singer, who's based in Princeton. And uh, he's fascinating on some of these areas. Like his views are you're not a person, you're not there until you're fully conscious, until you can recognize yourself, which is actually way post-birth. So, I mean, he would sort of philosophically argue that it, it's not a problem. Uh, you're not human. It's not not an act of murder until, until you can recognize yourself. Uh, and, and so post-birth abortion, et cetera, would be okay for him. But where he gets interesting is there's a lady called Anne McDonald who uh, got to meet with him at one point. And she'd been born with really bad cerebral palsy. And um, she was kind of a body, but without a brain. And she was left in the hallways of a home just to kind of waste away. And, and, and she was able actually to begin to communicate. And um, she got to engage with Singer and really challenge him around this. And where the story got interesting was as Singer's own mother became much older. And she got Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly difficult place to find yourself. But Singer had spent his life arguing that you shouldn't use your family resources to look after somebody in that position. In fact, his own mum agreed with him and had written that down in her will. But funnily enough, he and his sister, of course, cared for their mum against almost her wishes and against his own arguments. Because when it comes to your own mum, he said this, perhaps it is more difficult than I thought because it's different when it's your mother. So philosophically, as a utilitarian, he says, she's not useful. She doesn't have the full rights of a human being. And yet, when it's your mum, of course you think about it differently. Gosh, I, I find that um, that statement, you're not fully human until you recognise yourself, uh, both fascinating and terrifying. Because in one respect, how we recognise ourselves is not something we are capable of doing independently or, or on our own. That recognition is reflected. So um, even, even at a utilitarian perspective, that usefulness, our recognition of ourself is based on the reflection of our usefulness that comes from others. And then we end up in this horrible spiral. At the bottom end, what do you do with the weak and the infirm and those who need care and support and, and who can't, uh, can't recognize themselves? Do we demean and diminish their humanity? And what do we do at the top for those who are fighting for recognition and saying their rec recognition is being uh, suppressed or subverted in some way? And how do we have that conversation? It seems like this usefulness framework, this story that is governing value doesn't work. So if that doesn't work, then does the Bible give us a framework that can? So the biblical framework, what we're calling the God story, starts with this notion that your worth and your dignity is not, never was, cannot be based on your usefulness. It's not about your ability to reason or even your ability to recognize yourself. Um, this is a foundational story that says we are made in the image of God. We are, each of us, a divine image bearer. Um, and without that, our dignity and our value has to be based on something else. And in our current world, it has to be often based on our usefulness. Yeah, and the Christian story so underpins the Western story that for a long time, people have just got away with picking the fruit, with living off the bits of the God story that suit them. 
Um, but actually, as society rejects its Christian roots, slowly but surely, people are beginning to realize how much rests on those roots. So a bit like Nietzsche, okay, reject Christianity, but on what basis does anybody's life matter? Why care about another random collection of cells if that's your story, even one you're married to, even one you help produce, if that's all they are? Why care? And, and even with then with Peter Singer, he was living off the fruit of the Christian story when it came to his mum because the mm. tree he'd based his life on wasn't strong enough. He couldn't he couldn't value and affirm his mum based on his own. So he had to resort to living off the fruit of the Christian story that says our value and our dignity is worth something more separate to our usefulness. Now, we get that. We get that from our creation story. We get that from Genesis 1 and 2 when, when God said, let us make man in our own image. And he gave us dominion and he gave us responsibility and he sent us out into creation to work um, and to be in relationship and to be in relationship with him. Now, next episode, we're going to go well into this story and unpack it even further. But it's safe to say that without that story, without that value and dignity coming from our nature as the bearers of God's image, without that story, we end up in this usefulness. What do you offer me now? And it's just not strong enough. Absolutely. I mean, the creation story is absolutely critical. This notion of the Imago Dei, that we're made in the image of God, as you've said, that image language is so powerful that we we carry his likeness is the other word that's used. Male, in, in the image of God, he created them male and female in the likeness of God. And then he breathed his breath into us, the, the nepesh into us. Um, and that's everybody. This is not kind of Christians or something we're saying. This is every single human being has that. We're formed. We've been brought to life by the breath of God. And then we've been placed in this world to steward and to cultivate it. And so we have this wrong, strong sense of identity. We're wired for relationships with one another because we're made in the image of relational God. And we have this purpose to steward and to cultivate creation that we're going to pick up some more. But all of those things are found in this foundational story um, that sets humans apart. It gives us our nature, not our use. And we see this culminate in the in the person of Jesus, where he recognizes the worth, not the use of the people in front of him, where he reaches out to women, to children, to lepers, to the Samaritans, to all the people who are at the bottom end of the human food chain and says, I honor you. You are welcome in my kingdom. You have dignity and worth and value. That is what Jesus brings uh, he brings good news to a utilitarian world because the people at the bottom of it are welcomed in and affirmed. Yeah, and we're going to unpack more of this story and there's brokenness in the world and there's lots of things we want to get into. But ultimately, the New Testament and Paul and Colossians is following on from Jesus and inviting people into a new humanity. So everybody's made in the image of God. But the invitation then is, is to see our lives joined with the risen Christ, not about escaping and getting out of here and into heaven. No, Jesus is ruling over all creation from heaven. He's going to come back and transform and redeem all things. And so Paul is challenging and encouraging the Colossians, but also us to live in the presence as the new humans that we will one day become. You know, he's, he's getting the images of the old humanity and contrasting that and saying, no, no, Jesus has died and risen again and invited us into the new humanity and envisions that. 
generous, merciful, forgiving community of loving one another. Uh, he's, we're the first fruits of what is to come. There isn't going to be Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female in the world to come. It's just this incredible image of what it is to be both looking back at Genesis already image bearers, but invited into something even more than that. It's beautiful. So we get to be welcomed into this new humanity, into this story. And then we bear witness to this story, just as Jesus did, bearing witness to the world, reflecting on others, the value that is inherent within them, helping them recognize themselves as image bearers of the one true God. Okay, so we're coming into land. Let's wrap this up. We have seen through COVID and through other stories that have been cutting through the noise of the last few months, um, a, a rapidly more evident cultural story that has a very strong utilitarian element that says people are valued based on their usefulness. This is a harsh world full of tough decisions where people's rights get thrown under the bus for the sake of others. It's a harsh world for the unborn, for the, the disabled, the elderly, the foreigner and the scapegoated. This list goes on and on. So whose lives matter in this world? Those who are most useful. You have to prove your usefulness and your value is often awarded at the expense of others. And what we want to do is not only expose that story, but say that the God story has become so part of the DNA of the Western culture, it has actually transformed its moral imagination. And that actually has significant implications. The dignity, the rights agenda of, of women, of children, of foreigners, of, of slaves, of anyone whom society has treated as less than human has been transformed by the God story. And and Jesus didn't just come to 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 show that transformation and to teach about dignity, not least then when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first, but this our incarnation, the moment when he became a baby, he made himself nothing. He made himself useless. He took on the form of a slave and he humbled himself on a cross. He said the usefulness narrative will not, cannot will never stand. There is something fundamentally wrong with this. There is something new to be seen here. We get to look back at creation and remember and, and rejoice in the fact that we are image bearers. And then we get to look forward to the new creation of Revelation 21 and 22 that says we will be redeemed and we will be valued and affirmed and part of this wonderful creation. But at the heart of the story, is Jesus becoming human and inviting us into the humanity that he demonstrated and he heralded. Utilitarianism puts pressure on us to prove our worth. Jesus is good news because he takes that pressure because we cannot bear it. He has proven his worth. God looked at him and declared him righteous. We have worth and dignity and value because of him whether we believe it or not. Yes. So we have covered quite a lot of ground. We know that. We always want to land on some discipleship implication stuff that's very real for us in terms of this. A couple of things we, we probably want to say is, like we have to acknowledge that we have often adopted that usefulness narrative. It's really easy to get sucked into it. We'll, yeah. we'll end up doing it in our workplaces and in our lives. 
we can focus on souls and the saving of souls and getting out of here. We can be way too focused on being pro-birth rather than truly pro-life and all of life. Um, we've not always been on the side of the oppressed. Uh, we too have fallen for the utility sort of framework. And so we need to be more responsible because we, we know the story that's different. We know that actually every life does matter. We know that usefulness should not be the test. So we're going to need to apologize for some stuff that we haven't done well as Christians. Yeah, yeah. And then we can also lean in and share this God story and remember that it has changed our culture, often for good. We can have conversations about racial, racial injustice. We can have conversations about sexual abuse and recognize them as problems in our culture today because the God story challenges the narrative that says, if I have power, I can do what I like. I can use people how I like. Now, we obviously need to acknowledge when that God story hasn't been good, but we shouldn't shy away from the beauty and the goodness of that story and the hope that it can offer people. Many of today's conversations are about the value and dignity of people, and they're vitally important because God's story tells us they're important. We have a story to share that is really good and has something incredibly positive to say. Yeah, so it's a great place for the conversation to be happening. And we're going to need a lot of wisdom to navigate some of those conversations around identity politics and potentially things like intersectionality. It's like a real challenge because there's discrimination going on and it's based on sex and race and class and lots of things. And they do overlap and they're not easy answers. It can be really easy to kind of pick holes in the whole woke agenda. There's a great article by a guy called Michael Bird that we're going to signpost about how the fundamentalist war on wokeness Sort of conservative Chris said, oh, wokeness, oh, let's get rid of all that. It's actually a war on Christian love because underneath that story, they're picking on the fruit of the God story. And we should be acknowledging the reality of racism and discrimination and injustice, whether historical, cultural, institutional, and determining to change it and do something about it. This doesn't require adherence to kind of the Marxist narrative, being woke, all these ideas. This is about taking the Christian worldview right into the center of the cultural conversation and, and expressing what it means to have dignity and value and freedom and opportunity to people. We're to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place that we have been placed, of the place we've been planted. Um, and ultimately, that is the wisdom that we need to carry into the community, into the city, into the conversation that we're having, because we want to see people flourish and flourish and thrive. And the story that people are being fed is not a thriving, flourishing story. It's a story that people cannot carry the weight of. Few people would disagree with the idea that we want to see people do well. And that's arguably what we're even trying to do here with the Wider Being Human Project, because we want to help build bridges and help you recognize where all of these stories come together and pull apart. And that's our missional edge. But we need wisdom to see what's going on and what's happening. So we're landing the episode. We've challenged the story of utilitarianism, that, that usefulness is what counts. We've cut across that and said that God's story just gives inherent value and dignity to every single human being who is made in his image. We want to live at that intersection point. Jesus is good news because no matter who you are and what's going on in your life, you are valuable, you have worth, and you have dignity. He loves you and he cares passionately about you. And we want to help the church to model that better in the world around us. So that is us. 
season uh, two, episode one, in the can. Um, I hope you liked it. Do follow us, find us, like us, uh, tweet us, subscribe to this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Um, And we will be back with episode two imminently. Um, So do keep an eye out for us and keep in touch. Take care and God bless. Be blessed.